Poole Couch Podcast is a weekly conversation with Dr. Lakeitha Poole, a licensed professional counselor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about all things mental health and personal growth. The Emerald Couch Podcast is the go-to pop site dialogue for self-help, good laughs, and real talk. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for seeking support from a licensed mental health professional and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For more information about counseling and therapeutic services, or for assistance in connecting with a therapist in your area, visit our website at www.smalltalkcounseling.com. Let's start the show. to the Emerald Couch, everybody. Uh, Thank you guys again, as always, for continuing to listen and to support. You all are so awesome. Um, I appreciate it so much. Definitely getting to continue to hear from you guys and um, know that we're growing and that people um, love what we're doing. So I hope that you keep listening. Uh, Make sure if you haven't already that you go ahead now and subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud or both. Um, and follow us as well on our social media. So Instagram at Go Small Talk Counseling, um, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash counseling. And then I feel like I always forget um, to mention our website, which is www.smalltalkcounseling.com. Um, and I forget how cool it is. So, I mean, we have this podcast, but we also have a blog and you can see more just about um, kind of what we do from a therapeutic and consultation perspective um, that might be of interest to you. So I do forget to mention that sometimes in our website, it's pretty cool. So I hope that you definitely go and check it out. Um, so today I just want to get into a topic that I kind of promised and just threw out there at the end of last episode Um that we would do an entire episode dedicated to Ask Dr. LP questions. So um, over the last couple of weeks, we've gotten um, a, a few questions. And so I know we don't always make enough time on every episode to answer. So I thought it might be a good idea, especially since we're still closing out and ending um, Mental Health Awareness Month to go ahead and maybe talk through some of these questions. So episode seven will be dedicated in its entirety um, to Ask Dr. LP. So I'm pretty excited about this and hopefully we'll be able to offer some good advice to the folks that have sent us some questions. And so um, I guess we'll just get right into it. So one of the first questions that I received um, asked about, will you help people understand what it's like living with a mental health condition? So I thought this was um a really important, but also really, you know, insightful question for somebody to even ask. And so um, I guess maybe the best place to even start in responding is maybe offer a little bit of statistics, but then maybe get into kind of a real perspective of what that might look like. So most of us or anybody who's um, involved in mental health or has an interest knows that one in five people, um, particularly American adults, Um, experience some form of mental illness in a year. So um, 
that's that's pretty big as far as when we think of you know statistically that's that's a lot of folks um and of course across our u.s population um one in every 25 adults is already living with some sort of serious mental health condition so that could include things like major depression bipolar disorder schizophrenia um any sort of condition that we might think of that might be long-term or reoccurring um definitely falls into that one in 25 category. So just to maybe give some insight um, a little bit more about what a mental illness is. So mental illness is a condition that affects a person's thinking, um, their feeling, or their mood. And so um, these conditions may affect somebody's ability to be able to connect with other people um, or to function just day to day. And so, of course, each person's experiences will be different. Um, and they'll have different experiences. And this could even include people with the same diagnosis. So you can't really say that there's sort of a one size fits all based on um, a diagnosis or a label that people might try to give. And so um, that's definitely, I think, something people have to keep in perspective um, when trying to identify if something truly is a mental illness, but then also um, trying to be very by the book about what a mental illness for somebody might look like. Um, I think some of the other things to consider, so, you know, as with like any serious illness, so even physical illness, like mental illness isn't typically somebody's fault, um, or really isn't somebody's fault. Um, and definitely not even the fault of maybe people around you, but I definitely think, you know, there's misunderstandings about that and, and people sort of assume they've either caused their um, mental illness or that, you know, folks in their life have caused that to happen. Um, It doesn't mean that environmental and social factors don't play a role for sure. And and maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later. But um, people should not walk around sort of assuming that their mental illness is something they brought upon themselves. So a lot of times because of that, um, people sort of dismiss that something might even be wrong in general. And so they don't seek treatment or they just stay unaware um, that their symptoms might be connected to something that is indeed a mental health condition. So what I think often happens, and this hopefully starts to connect um, and helps with the, the person that submitted this question, but people start to expect a person with mental illness to look like different from other people, um, or they may tell somebody, you know, who they perceive as not like looking ill, um, quote unquote, um, to get over it and just kind of like push through or be strong or be resilient. Um, And that's not always easy for somebody who's dealing with something like that. And so obviously these misperceptions and sort of prejudgments add to the challenges of people who live with a mental health condition um, and makes it more difficult for them to either consider seeking help um, or be responsive to their treatment process um, based on maybe the opinions of people around them. So one of the things that also comes up often is, you know, people may also perceive that a mental health condition is the result of like a single event. So, you know, something goes wrong, you experience this one thing and and you're changed forever. And so what we know from research wise, and a lot of this um, is things that I have found through um, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. So NAMI um, talks about some of the 
the multiple causes or link some of the multiple causes, things like genetics. Um, I talked about environment a few minutes ago, um, lifestyle habits. Um, so, you know, health and wellness um, all play a part in whether somebody may develop um, a mental health condition. So that might be having a stressful job or home life. Um, those things could even make someone susceptible to being uh, open to having a mental health condition. Um, But then, of course, the traumatic sort of life events that I think most people think about being a victim of a crime, going through a natural disaster, um, any sort of traumatic experience, of course, um, definitely fits in well with that. And then there's also sort of this biochemical piece that people... um, probably when it's not their interests, don't consider as well. So there are biochemical processes and circuits and things that are based on your brain structure that can also play a role as well. So to kind of wrap up this answer, because I know we have more questions. Ideally, I think the people around you will understand your illness and they will be encouraging. Um, but honestly, the important people in your life, you know, they may not know much about mental illness and how they can help. And so they may want to help, but just don't know what to do. And so making sure that you give family and friends um, the best possible chance um, to be able to help, you know, allow them to understand what it looks like to think ahead, to plan around um, the things that you experience emotionally, your thoughts, um, your process that you have to sort of go through so that they can be of assistance and kind of learn more um, so that you don't become frustrated in the process um, of seeking treatment and and becoming well. So that would definitely be kind of just my advice to answer that question around, you know, helping people understand what does it look like um, and kind of the roots Uh, causes that people sort of overlook when it comes to mental illness. So I definitely appreciate that question. Uh, The next question we have is, I can't tell if I have a brain problem or mind problem. Um, How can I figure that out? So what I'm assuming this person is asking is really like the difference between or a distinction between um, neurological concerns versus cognitive concerns. Um, And so maybe I need to explain what those are first before I even kind of get to the bottom line about that. But so neurological concerns, so obviously based in neuroscience, involve the brain and the body functioning together. So in clinical terms, this would include a therapist who obviously is trained in neural counseling um, to consider both the physiological, so the body, um, and the neurophysiological, which is the brain, Um, occurrences that are happening within an individual and then how they're related um, to somebody's internal or mental growth um, and those other factors. And so, um, you know, when something's neurologically based, we're we're definitely talking about a neuroscience perspective and the brain and the body interacting. The other side of that that I mentioned is sort of cognitive concerns. And so these are based in beliefs Um, and schemas and patterns that have shaped how a person might perceive the world. So for instance, um, using defense mechanisms maybe to avoid facing a trauma. Um, Sometimes people will utilize uh, their beliefs or these schemas to avoid internal conflict. So this might apply to somebody who struggles with social anxiety, for instance. Um, And then I think even thinking about how 
often and, and maybe sometimes all of us are guilty of this, but utilizing past experiences to create meaning, um, which could be for better or for worse. Right. So you have a really great experience. And so then you automatically sort of make this assumption that things will always be that way. And when it doesn't um, causes you to go into sort of this like cognitive crises um, or things maybe in your mind have never gone great for you. Um, and so now you've sort of developed this perspective um, where you never expect anything to happen and sort of live up to that. And, and, and this idea of like self-fulfilling prophecy, like nothing good can happen to me. And so nothing won't. And so you don't even allow yourself to pull yourself out of that. So in either case, you know, working with a counselor, um, you know, can definitely assist somebody in getting to the bottom of, you know, what things you're you're facing or the concerns that you're thinking about and kind of help you work through them. Um, or, of course, be able to refer you to a more appropriate mental health practitioner. So, for instance, if, um, and this came up in the last question, like, if there's some biochemical imbalance, you may need to be referred to a psychiatrist who can prescribe medication or back to your primary care physician. Um, if your concerns are maybe based in something having to do more with, you know, your environment or resources that are needed, um, they may point you to a clinical social worker. So just being able um, to be open to the process, but I definitely think if anything, my advice would be, you know, not to dwell on you figuring out, do you have a brain problem or a mind problem, but um, seeking that support so that you can sort of figure out um, the baseline of where you are and, and kind of determine more details about what you're really experiencing and be able to flush that out with somebody. So um, that would definitely be, for me, uh, one of the things that I think you should consider. So I appreciate that question too. That's definitely something um, pretty deep. These are some deep questions, y'all. Um to really think through and really get at the heart of, you know, the full scope of what mental health really is. Cause I don't necessarily know that we spend a lot of time talking about all these things. Um, so my third question that I received says, if I don't have much meaning or life purpose, how might my emotional pain be related to that? So another really good question. Um, obviously, immediately upon reading that maybe you're lacking meaning or life purpose or don't see any purpose uh, for your life, my like spidey senses go to some form of depression. Um, and that doesn't mean that's what you have. I think just it's a depressive symptom. So that's a better way to say that. Um, so depression itself is just like this loss of motivation to do anything because you feel, you know, life is meaningless. And so there's no sense of a future. There's no purpose um, to kind of give you hope and help kind of pull you back into a place of positivity. And so, of course, finding purpose in life that goes beyond like your personal needs is often um, a major step towards overcoming sadness or feeling down or, or depression. Um, however, it can be extremely difficult if you're in the middle um, of sort of a, a severe depressive state and you're trying to avoid, you know, maybe relapsing back into um, sort of a, a recurring depressive state. And so, of course, at that time, the only thing on your mind is just daily survival. Like, how do I make sure that I still um, function every day? But the issue with, I think the question that you're asking is you're not flourishing. So you feel kind of stuck. You don't feel like you have meaning. Um, you don't know your purpose. So, to 
kind of, I guess, make a connection between the the second half of your question about emotional pain. Um, I guess first I have to say that like emotional pain isn't unique to depression. So that's why I kind of gave that disclaimer. Definitely cannot diagnose you through this question um, and say that you have depression. But I think a lot of times um, emotional pain also appears um, in symptom form and could be related to other things like grief or again traumatic experiences that you've had and so individual symptoms or even like having a few of them can be triggered by other things so that might be losing a job going through a divorce um, some major disappointment for you a loss a major change Um, and so of course if those symptoms from the emotional pain continue for too long then they could totally develop into something that will require treatment like depression or anxiety Um, or even bipolar disorder. And so by themselves, um, these emotional pain symptoms don't necessarily, again, mean that you have anything or that you can be diagnosed with anything, but the symptoms obviously present in a way that um, cause the person to, to worry. And so again, like I've probably said at the end of each of my responses, seeking help is important. Um, So maybe let me give I guess, folks, an idea around what emotional pain might look like or what those symptoms might be. So this might be things like prolonged sadness, um, crying uncontrollably or without an explanation, feeling worthless, feeling guilty, um, both of those maybe without an explanation, um, losing self-esteem or having low self-esteem, feeling hopeless or in a place of despair, Um, And also feeling helpless so that you're unable to be able to work through it. So that list could obviously go on and on. I think most people, most of us, if we could put ourselves on maybe our worst day, if we put ourselves back in that place or in our shoes on that day, um, at least one of those symptoms that I mentioned, we probably have felt. And so even though, again, they're not unique to clinical depression, um, there's definitely, you know, a link to how it may lead to something that's negative as far as sort of how you feel emotionally. And so, for instance, like feeling helpless um, could totally be a reasonable reaction to something difficult that happens. Sometimes things feel out of our control. And so for that reason alone, you wouldn't instantly jump to, you know, start diagnosing yourself with something. But you definitely could see how if, if prolonged, that could turn in Um, to something that's diagnosable or to a mental illness or concern. Um, So one of the books that I like uh, or that I've read in the past around um, emotional uh, pain, and really, I'm sorry, I said book, but it's an article, um, is Guy Winch, who wrote Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. Um, And what I like about the article is he really talks about um, kind of these five tips to help people heal their emotional pain. And so I'm going to maybe give those because I think that might be useful for um, this response for this person's question. Um, And then maybe just helpful for those of us who are not in sort of an active state of feeling hopeless or helpless or experiencing emotional pain, but it may help with ways to avoid it. So first tip um, was letting go of rejection. And so obviously like rejection activates kind of in our brain um, physically the same sort of um, chemicals 
uh, that sadness and depression does. And so that's one of the reasons why rejection like hurts so much. Um, it definitely toys with your emotions and um, makes you feel like you don't belong and can sometimes be really distressing for some people where it affects their ability to think and make decisions. And so the sooner you're able to let go of painful rejections, the better your mental health and mental wellness can be. Number two is avoid ruminating. So ruminating is when you sit and kind of just think consistently um, about something. And so in this instance, you're basically brooding over a past hurt, um, a stressful situation, something that has disappointed you. Um, and so, of course, the more you do that, they become increasingly distressing and absolutely cause more sadness, more frustration, more anger. Um, and it doesn't get you anywhere. You gain no new insights um, by ruminating. And so when you are reflecting on a painful event, which could, you know, help you reach an understanding, gain some closure, ruminating kind of increases your stress level and actually can become something that people can sort of become addicted to. So like I also mentioned in my last response that, you know, people sort of get comfortable with finding a way to explain um their discomfort, their their uncomfortable emotions um, to the point where that feels safer than actually trying to fix them. And so ruminating um, sort of kicks off that process, which is why it's great to avoid. Number three is turning failure into something positive. Um, and in my perspective, I had to add, obviously, I didn't write this article, but I would even maybe more say perceived failure, because um, I think that's that's relative and kind of fits with some things that we're talking about. Um, so obviously, like if you allow yourself to feel helpless after a failure or you're quick to blame it on like bad luck or some ability or skill that you just don't have, um, it's definitely going to take a toll on your self-esteem. And so blaming a failure on specific factors within your control is, you know, less damaging. So like if it's an issue of planning better or executing something um, in a better way, it definitely um, is less damaging um, emotionally than really allowing yourself to feel completely helpless after you feel that you've failed at something. And so, of course, the complete opposite of that and, and the best way would even be thinking about focusing on ways you can improve and sort of be better informed or prepared so that you can be successful the next time you try. Um, I think to fit with that, most people don't try again. And so if you sort of let go and um, or give up and don't allow yourself to even attempt again, how could you rectify a failure, which then also fits with how can you rectify how you feel about it? Um, so that's definitely something, again, I think you have to consider. And that's why I said not just saying turning a failure into something positive, but a perceived failure. Because if you try again and this time you're successful, you won't necessarily perceive that last attempt as a failure, but instead as maybe your practice to getting things right. So number four um, make sure that guilt remains a useful emotion. So I mentioned this in my response, uh, my first response to question number one um, around like feelings of guilt and sadness and how that fits, you know, with folks when they're trying to even determine what uh, mental illness looks like. So, you know, 
guilt can be beneficial. And I'll say that and it can stop you from doing something that might, you know, harm somebody else or make you insensitive to someone else. And so it's definitely a way to protect important relationships. So if you feel a sense of guilt, you're more than likely to not risk um, somebody or something that's valuable to you. But of course, guilt that lingers or is excessive can definitely impair your ability to focus and enjoy life. And so if you are someone who needs to go through the process of if you if you have done something that, you know, potentially harms or that's physically, mentally, emotionally someone else, apologizing is a great way to rectify that and being able to sort of not carry that sense of guilt. Uh, For those folks that maybe still feel guilty after apologizing, after doing something wrong or saying something wrong, um, make sure that you've expressed empathy. I think, you know, a lot of folks mix up just saying I'm sorry with actually being able to um, put yourself in the other person's shoes that maybe you've caused harm to come to and imagine what that feels like. Those type of apologies feel way different than just a I'm sorry that that doesn't have any emotion or conviction behind it. And so just make sure that in that process of apologizing that as you express that empathy, you know, that you convey to them that you understand how your your actions impacted them and, and you know, that you truly are sorry for putting them through that experience. And so, of course, this helps to then lead to authentic forgiveness and being able to kind of relieve yourself of those guilty feelings, which is what you want. So, That's how you allow um, guilt to remain more of a useful emotion versus one that causes your mood to decrease. And then the last one, number five, is utilizing self-affirmations. So um, positive affirmations are excellent tools for emotional health, but if they fall outside of the boundaries of kind of your beliefs and what you know about yourself, they may not be effective. So, you know, a critical piece of using self-affirmations is really being honest with yourself, but knowing yourself well enough to know what is it that you need to hear from you um, to boost your mood, to make you feel like it's worth trying again after that failure, to be able um, to offer, you know, the support that you need to get through a rough period that you might be in. So obviously when, you know, that, um, those affirmations fall outside of the boundaries of your beliefs. You know, this happens for people with low self-esteem um, where, you know, really they need those self-affirmations in order for there to be useful change and um, be able to see sort of a difference in their mood. And so being able to help reinforce these positive qualities that you believe you have can definitely make Um, a huge difference. And so often I encourage clients to have a list um, of like, what do you think your best qualities are? Um, A lot of my college age clients and even teen clients, I encourage if their parents will let them um, or if they can do this maybe in their their dorm room or apartment, um, those, if their words or phrases that are positive affirmations for you or or Um, positive qualities about yourself, write them on the mirror that you maybe start your day in um, when you're brushing your teeth so that you recite those to yourselves or you remind yourself of what um, what's important about you? What do you like about you? What are the things that make you feel great about being you? So positive affirmation is definitely a useful tool um, when used properly. So those are some of my tips. 
Um, I think these were excellent questions that really get to the core of probably some things that those of you who are still trying to figure out if you're ever going to seek mental health support, um, maybe this helps make it a little more clear, erases a little bit more of the stigma, um, and it just allows you to hear sort of a real perspective without using um, all the scientific talk that often happens around conversations about mental health that just is somewhat unnecessary um, and partially why I have this podcast in the first place, because that's what I wanted to do. Um, so being able to clarify just some of the things that were asked today, you know, centered around what mental health even looks like and helping those around you, you know, know what to do to help facing, you know, issues of not having meaning, which potentially could be a result of depression, but also just life circumstance. And then, of course, being able to understand that, you know, there is this biological component um, sometimes where neurology plays a part. And how do you distinguish that from simple beliefs and cognitions that, you know, are just getting in a way which you can totally use therapy to change and work through? So I hope that this was somewhat helpful. I know that I could go on and on and on with questions, but hopefully this also helps those of you that are listening to be inspired and to ask something that maybe you're interested in around um, mental health and that I can attempt to answer for you. I don't know it all, but I think being able to have um, an open conversation about mental health definitely Helps And so I appreciate those of you who submitted questions because these were awesome um, and gives us a chance to talk um, in an informal way about mental health and hopefully um, help somebody else feel better about maybe what they're going through or what someone in their life is going through and offer them some support. So I guess we'll go ahead right here, take a quick break. Um, and then come back with two of our signature segments, our pop psych moment of the week and our small talk bookshelf. So we'll be right back. All right, folks, we are back. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right into our pop psych moment of the week. So I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast that um, I am currently traveling. So I've brought the Emerald Couch with me all the way to Washington, D.C. Um, and so I'm recording this episode um, here um, because I'm currently at the NBCC Forum on Minority Addictions Counseling. Um, so NBCC is the National Board of Certified Counselors. So um, I'm an NCC, a National Certified Counselor, um, and also during my doctoral process received a fellowship from NBCC um, to continue my studies and to um, be able to support um, their initiative of bridging the gap in mental health disparities um, and resources for marginalized groups and underserved populations. So I'm super excited about being here in D.C. and that I get to still do this um, while away. So I'm excited for that. Um, so my pop psych moment of the week is actually centered around what I've been doing here the last day and a half um, at this forum. And so again, NBCC 
um, in collaboration with SAMHSA, which those of you that are clinicians that are listening know that that's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, um, have been having some very good and intentional conversations around um, just what's going on in society at large. So um, in the news right now, we're hearing a ton about um, America's opioid crises. And so um, this is like big topic, you know, they're pushing to put a lot of money behind this. And so, of course, I have to throw in a disclaimer here for folks that are listening. I think particularly my listeners um, of color who, even when I have posted about being at this conference, have reached out to me through text um, and asked, you know, are we also talking about some of the historical issues around, you know, crack and cocaine epidemics that have happened years before this and and sort of, you know, why now um, and sort of highlighting this. And obviously that definitely came up in our discussions when we start talking about cultural competency and um, sort of historical disparities around resources and support offered for substance and addictions counseling. Um, So it's been very interesting to get to talk about sort of an issue that is definitely a present moment issue and concern. And so we obviously talked about opioid crises um, or crisis. Um, We talked about the issue of mental health and substance abuse treatment disparities. So, you know, what's out there, what's not out there resource wise um, and the importance of culturally competent, you know, workforce. Like, what does that mean to be able for those of us who are clinicians um, to be working in a place where uh, we're not the only ones maybe standing up for marginalized populations in order to be able to make sure that proper care is given, but then also thinking about um, our clients who may come in who um, identify as an underserved or marginalized uh, group or a member of a group and you know are able to get sort of the treatment that they need from Um, a clinician that is equipped to offer it. So I've been able to spend the last day and a half with other licensed professional counselors um, and counselor educators like myself um, discussing strategy to be able to address these issues from both a structural level, um, you know, as far as like what we can do as clinicians, but also like institutional level. So thinking about like what funding is needed, you know, from the government, what sort of concerns or structures need to be put in place politically, socially, um, system, family system wise to help offer support for family members of, you know, people struggling with addictions. And so being able um, to really kind of just have open time to talk and address concerns about something so relevant um, was really cool. And so, of course, I knew that I needed to share that with you guys because I think what I've loved most about it is that it's such a specific forum um, that was created to be able to have a discussion about a very specific mental health issue like substance abuse. And so, you know, just getting to initiate conversations Um, talk about ways that we can continue to erase stigma and then of course leverage just the power of utilizing counseling and therapy to bring about really important and effective change in our society at large so it's been pretty cool and so I just thought that would probably be a great way just to highlight 
what's happening right now. And I don't necessarily know that it's pop culture, but it's kind of because it's all over the news everywhere and counseling and psychology together for our pop psych moment of the week to be able to highlight something that I'm sure many of you, whether you're in the mental health field or not, um, are hearing about all the time and, and really starting to Um, maybe wonder more about it. So know that counselors and therapists are trying to do their part to definitely um, bring some answers back out to society at large about what's going on and how can we maybe affect change no matter what role we play in society. So that's our pop psych moment of the week. So our small talk bookshelf for this week is actually an article that I read in the June 2018 issue of Vogue magazine. And so most people, if you are on social media, probably when it first was released, saw this particular month's article or or cover story, which features Rihanna. She definitely has songs that I love. And I think maybe now that she is utilizing her platform um, to talk about things that maybe just are more relevant to the things that I do, we have a different connection. So I was actually pretty excited about getting to read this article after um, I saw it popping up on social media um, a bit. And so when my issue of Vogue came in the mail, I was kind of excited to get to read it. So um, her article really covered just a wide range of issues um, that related to mental health. And I don't necessarily know that Um, She was trying to be intentional about that, and and maybe she was, but um, I definitely, in reading it, made a ton of connections to mental health and what they might mean or what it might mean for those of us who maybe identify with her in some way, whether that's as a woman, as a woman of color, um, as somebody in, you know, an industry that is often centered around, um, sort of portraying wellness and perfection, um, knowing that that's not really truth for any of us. Um, And so one of the things, and she talks about a couple of things, and I'm going to try to as quickly as possible sum up some of those things she talked about. But one of the big ones that came up was crafting um, a positive body image that's totally based in self-acceptance. So what I loved is, you know, she was pretty raw and honest about her own struggles with body image, um, but also what she's done um, to sort of do her part to maybe resolve some of those issues for other women. Um, So I think a lot of people know um, or have heard about um, the launch of her beauty line, Fenty Beauty. Um, And so one of the big things that really got highlighted and actually a lot of other beauty brands got really upset about um, was the wide range of shades that she had in her foundations. And so um, the reason that she gave for that was being able to allow all women, no matter what um, their background ethnicity is, um, to look and feel beautiful. And so again, some of the backlash, of course, she faced from other brands Um, who kind of hit back and said, well, we also have 40 shades and we always have. And um, being able to realize that you may have had, you know, this wide range of shades, but did it also encompass skin type and um, sort of undertones, particularly for um, women who are more heavily melanated. And so being able um, for her to like kind of give that level of resolve for people Um, who maybe are struggling with feeling beautiful because they just simply can't find the right color foundation for themselves, I thought was pretty awesome. Her beauty line has 
been, in my opinion, really, really great um, for women, particularly women of color. And um, I own some of the products and I think they're they're really good. So I was definitely excited about that um, and excited to learn more about why she did that. Um, similarly, she also talked about um, her new lingerie line, um, Savage, which really is for um, women of all sizes and body types. So again, just kind of helping to erase those negative messages that society might be giving about, you know, a perfect look, um, a perfect body type and being able to sort of dispel some of those messages so that again, all women everywhere feel great, feel beautiful. Um, so I love that. So really like this idea of, you know, just crafting your own positive body image based on how you perceive yourself and accepting yourself as you are. Another thing that she talked about, um, was gun violence. So, um, I don't know if a lot of people know, but, um, recently, um, Rihanna had a cousin who was, um, murdered by gun violence in Barbados. And so, you know, while she didn't get into the politics around it, I appreciated her um, candidness about, you know, not only that someone loses their lives, but what does that do to both the family of that individual, but also the communities and, and you know, the morale around um, either living in what's known to be a violent community um, or a crime-filled community, um, you know, and how does that kind of take a toll on somebody's sort of mental well-being and, and again, how they perceive their ability to be safe. So I, again, appreciated her being transparent and candid about that as well. And then um, the last one, and I think this was like, you know, it hit all the way home, was the importance of self-care um, and spending time with people that are worth your time. And so um, when I was reading that, I was also like, okay, this is a word because, you know, what I think doesn't often happen, and this is, you know, for those of us who work in mental health, those who maybe work in um, higher education, people who um, serve in really any kind of human service capacity, when you get so used to being um, a giver to other people because your role is centered around improving the lives of other people. So this is teachers, doctors, um, you know, anyone. It's being able to realize that like you have to take time for self-care. If you don't do that, you're going to find yourself in a place where you experience burnout, which is not good. I've been there before and it is definitely not a place um, to be. And so making sure that, you know, you spend your time with people that are worth your time. So when you do get a day off or you do allow yourself to maybe take a vacation to not let that time, which is super, super valuable, um, be overshadowed by somebody who's maybe negative or who's draining, making sure that it's with people or a person that's able to pour back into you. Um, and I think maybe that comes with sort of wisdom with age um, or just being able to understand sort of that need so that you do not hit that wall and sort of reach a point where not only are you unable to help the people um, that you're expected to service, but you also sort of can't even maintain um, your own level of happiness and support that's necessary. And so I definitely just appreciated her overall for being honest with us, um, being able to 
reveal, you know, things about herself that often just don't come up, not just for her, but like any um, sort of entertainment star um, who's out there. We often don't view them as humans who are just like us. And so I definitely appreciated her for utilizing what typically is, you know, all about like fashion. Um, I don't even know if she talks about fashion outside of like her beauty line and lingerie line to really just highlight sort of, you know, the importance of like being who you are, accepting yourself, loving on yourself, and then also taking time for yourself. So kudos to Rihanna for being Vogue's cover girl, but also just dropping some gems for us to be able to take and utilize in our everyday lives. So that is this week's Small Talk bookshelf as well. And if I can find the article, I will link that to this podcast so that you can maybe go check it out or um, check out a portion of it, maybe if they don't have the full article available. So folks, that has brought us to the end of another show, episode seven. It's in the books and you got to be a part of it. So Um, I appreciate you guys, as always. I know I say that probably a thousand times um, an episode, but I really do mean it. I definitely am excited about us going into basically another month soon. And so we have more ahead. We're not stopping. So hopefully we have some great interviews and some more exciting topics coming up for June to be able to continue to erase the stigma around mental health, but also be able to talk about some of these topics with you know, candor, but also with a little bit of just humor and fun facts. And so I hope that you will keep tuning in. So make sure that in order for you to be notified when new episodes are posted to like, follow and subscribe and make sure that if you haven't submitted one already and you've been listening to the show for a while, go ahead and submit a question for our Ask Dr. LP segment. And you never know, it might be your question that gets read and answered on air. So make sure you do that, whether it's through social media, you can do it on our website or you can email us directly. I appreciate you guys again so, so much and look forward to you tuning in next week. Until then, later.